take your Bibles, turn to the book of James. You can put a bookmark there if you have your Bibles with you, or bookmark it on your phone if you're using an app. But we're going to be in the book of James for the next several weeks. We're not really sure how long we're going to be in the book of James. We're going to walk through it almost verse by verse over the next several weeks. And so you can go ahead and mark your place there. We're excited about this new series. As I mentioned earlier, James is um, one of, I think, the most practical books in the New Testament. I think it is, uh, I have lots of stuff that we're going to be able to walk through as we begin a new year about what God intends for us to do. Now, I want us to start this morning by contemplating a question, thinking about a question. What if this morning, as we were just a few days into 2019, I was able to hand you a script of what your life would look like over the next five years? What if I was able to hand you a script with a listing of what was going to happen, not necessarily everyday detail, but big events that were going to happen in your life over the next five years? What if I was able to hand that to you this morning and it would accurately describe what would happen? And then, imagine this, what if I was able to give you an eraser? And you were able over the next 24 hours to take that list of things that were going to happen in the next five years of your life and erase anything you wanted to out of it. Now imagine, what if it wasn't you? What if when your child was born, I was able to hand you a script at their birth? And in that script, you have all the things that are going to happen for your child as they grow up, and, same deal, you have an eraser. And so, for instance, you find out that your little girl is, is going to grow up and, and is going to have a learning disability in school. It's not going to be able to um, learn to read quite as quickly as others. It's going to cause her some setbacks, but it's also going to teach her how to really work to her grades. And in high school, she's going to have a great group of friends. They're going to be really close, really tied together. But one of those friends is going to develop cancer and pass away before they graduate. After graduation, she gets into her school of choice and gets to go do the program that she wants to do. But while she's at university, she's in an accident in those four years. And she has severe injuries to her legs that puts her out of commission for a year. And she battles depression during that time. She gets married right out of college and to her, somebody she met in college. And they have a great relationship for the first seven years. And then separation. And eventually divorce happens. She gets her dream job in the midst of all of that and works at it for 10 years, but in the 11th year, there's an economic downturn and she loses her dream job and ends up having to go to work doing something she really doesn't like and spends the rest of her career in that. Now imagine, you've got an eraser. What would you erase if you knew the script beforehand? I think about my parents. You know, my, my parents, when I was born, they didn't know anything about what was going to happen to me. And if they would have known, for instance, that at the age of 12, I was going to be diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, would they have taken the eraser to that? If they would have known about the struggles that my brother has had physically over the last 10 years, would they have taken an eraser to that? If you knew in advance, what would you erase? And my guess is that if we knew in advance... We would only erase the painful moments. We would not look at the victories and excitement and all the good things that are happening and say, ooh, we're going to take that out. And yet, the painful moments, the trials in our lives are often the things through which we learn the most. James, chapter 1. There's a term right now that's out there about 
um, helicopter parents, you know that term, people that hover over their kids and try to keep all bad things from happening to them. It reminds me, you remember the movie Finding Nemo, not the Dory one, the first book, Finding Nemo, and Marlon protects little Nemo, and he says something to Dory, he says, I can't let anything happen to him. And Dory, who is not the smartest fish in the ocean, because she can't remember anything, says, well, if nothing ever happens to him, nothing ever happens to him. And as much as parents, or even our own lives, we like to protect ourselves, the reality is, it's in the living of life and the difficulties that we often learn the most. And James is going to jump right into that. When we get into James chapter 1, he's going to jump right into that. He's going to start by telling us that life is hard. Whether you follow Jesus or not, life is hard. And we don't always do a good job of that as Christians, of letting people know that. We've got to make it sound like, hey, just come accept Jesus, you're going to go to heaven one day, and we forget that middle part where it's hard. Sometimes when you follow Jesus, that middle part is harder than when you don't. Sometimes the closer you get to Jesus, the more difficult it becomes. It's the best life. Living for Jesus is the best life, but it's not always the easiest life. James, I love this, about this very practical book. Starts after just telling us who he is, which we're going to talk about in just a moment. After that, he jumps right in and says, life is going to be hard. Here's how you handle it. James, chapter 1, starting in verse 1, says this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes dispersed abroad, now we're not going to spend a whole lot of time here, but I do want to talk just for a moment about who is writing this book that we're going to spend the next several weeks discussing. This book is written by a man named James, obviously his name's right there at the front. It tells us there that he's a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it doesn't tell us there at the front, but which is true of the writer of this particular letter, is that not only does he know Jesus as his Lord and Savior, he also knew Jesus as brother. Because this is Jesus' half-brother. He was from Jesus' earthly family. James, we know from Scripture, was not a believer in Jesus during the time that Jesus was teaching on the earth. In fact, we know that there were times when he came with his other family members to Jesus and said, basically, give up the charade, come on home. Like, what are you doing? You're Jesus. We talked about this before. What would it take to convince you that your brother or sister is literally... God incarnate in the flesh, right? Like a lot. A whole lot. So he was like, this is just, this is my brother. This is my big brother Jesus. What, what do you mean? Like, come on home. Now scripture tells us that after Jesus died on the cross, rose again from the grave, that he appeared to James after that specifically. It tells us that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that Jesus appeared to James. James became a follower of Jesus then, and not only became a follower of Jesus, he became a leader in the church. In fact, he was the pastor at the first church in Jerusalem. Like, first church Jerusalem. The first one. He was the pastor at the most influential council that happened, where they decided about who could become a Christian and who couldn't. He was the pastor in charge of that. He's called an apostle later in life because of that. He was the man that was dedicated to his church. He was the man that was dedicated to prayer. He is given the name Camel Knees because his knees were so hard from praying again and again on his knees. And he was a man who would give his life because he believed his brother to be the son of God. 
And around 62 or 63 AD, he was stoned to death at the order of the high priest because of his faith in Jesus. He wrote this book, it tells us, to the twelve tribes dispersed abroad. And so he writes this book to Jewish Christians that are scattered around the world. And the reason they are scattered around the world at this particular time is because persecution had broken out in Jerusalem after Stephen was stoned, after Stephen was killed, and they scattered so that they would not be killed. And he says, these are some of the messages that I have been giving to the Christians in Jerusalem these are your messages for you. In fact, most people think that the book of James is the earliest writing we have in the entire New Testament. It was the first book written probably within 10 to 15 years of when Jesus rose again from the grave. It is the most practical book in the New Testament. It has more commands per verse than any other book in the Bible. It has somewhere around 54 commands in 108 verses. Now you don't have to be a math major to get that quickly. That's half, right? Half of the verses in James have commands for us to do. Most people feel it is just him taking the sermon that he has preached and condensing them into one book. And the central theme of the whole thing is that faith works. Belief in Jesus works. That means that it works for us and it means that it works in us and it means that it works through us. And over the next several weeks, we're going to look at that in different scenarios. How does faith work here? How does following Jesus work here? And in chapter 1, verse 2, he starts the whole book off by saying, it works when we need it the most in the midst of a trial. Look at James 1, verse 2, starting here it says, Consider it a great joy now, I had the first service read that with me, and when they read it, it was like this. Consider it a great joy. It was the most depressing joy I'd ever heard, right? I would have you do it, but it would sound the same. Especially because if you're a follower of Christ, you know the Bible, then you know what comes after that, right? It's not just, woo, rejoice, I thought it. Consider joy what? When trials of all kinds. Whenever you experience, my brothers and sisters, various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Next verse. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, anybody here lack wisdom? If you didn't raise your hand, it's proof you do. Alright? If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting. For the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. Now I'm going to go back to the beginning of this. Josh, can you go back one slide to that very beginning? Where it talks about, at the very beginning, these great joy that we are considerate whenever we experience various trials. Now the reason I want to focus on that for a minute is because there is a, an important um, difference here from what we sometimes want to say. Sometimes what we would like to say is consider a great joy, my brothers and sisters, sisters, if you experience trials of various kinds. But the word there is not if. The word there is whenever. When. And here's the thing, but I don't know much about what's going to happen in your life in 2019. I cannot predict what's going to happen in the new year for you. And I don't have a script of your life for the next five years. I don't have a script for your kids or my kids' life for their entire life. But I can guarantee you this. 
this year and in your life, you are going to experience difficult moments, seasons, years, perhaps decades. Because life is hard. And one of the great things about James starting here is he's going to give us some truth right in the midst of this about some things that we know when we're in the midst of trials. Because what happens for me, and I'm sure it happens for you some, when I get in the midst of a difficult situation, when things don't go my way, when he's talking to people in this passage who have experienced persecution, that have lost their home, that have lost their family, that have lost loved ones, that are by themselves, that are experiencing poverty because of their belief in Jesus Christ. These people are experiencing significant trials. And what happens in my life when difficulty comes, whether it's a relationship that's an issue, whether it's something that's happening in a workplace environment, or something that's happening at home, whether it's something that's happening in my health, or something that's happening in my finances, that whenever a trial comes, whenever that pressure comes, I begin to feel more than I think. Like I start to react in my feelings more than in my logical thinking. Because it hurts, or it's sad, or it's difficult. And I begin to feel things that may not line up with what Scripture says, but I have to remind myself, stop, it's not, that's not true. For instance, I was thinking of five things that sometimes I feel when a trial is coming that just aren't what is being talked about in this passage or in Scripture at all. First of all, one of the things that I feel sometimes is that God is punishing me. Maybe you've never been there, but when things start to happen in my life, I think, God's got to tell something. God saw, God knows, and He's let me have it for it. God, God, I'm sorry, God, I know you put me in this trial, you are punishing me for my sin. But here's the truth God has already punished your sin. He punished your sin when Jesus died on the cross. He's not punishing you again for sin that's already been punished in Jesus' death. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to talk to you today. If you're here, if you haven't believed in Jesus, you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, can I tell you this? That you are in a place where you still need forgiveness of your sins. That you still need to accept what Christ has done in salvation. But if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your sin has been punished as much as it can be or needs to be. It is finished. In case we miss that, it tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, Christ also suffered four sins once for all. Romans 6, 10 says, For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, he says, We have been sanctified through the body of Jesus once for all time. And in verse 17, it says that after what Jesus has done, God will say to them, I will never again remember their sins. Now, I don't know what good news is for you, but that is good news for me. He's not punishing you for your sin. Now, let me also make a clarification here. There are times because of your sin or your ridiculous decisions in life that you suffer the consequences on your own. We don't like to aid in that one as much. But it's true. Right? If you put your hand on an open flame, it's going to burn. And there are some of us 
that wanted to walk out into sin even after we have accepted the salvation of Jesus. And he's not punishing our sin, but he's allowing the consequences of our action to visit on us because of our own dumb mistakes. Now, I've met so many believers who will live their lives for the Lord. They will serve the Lord. They will serve the church. They will serve in the mission field. And then something will happen in their life and they'll say, I just don't understand why God is punishing me. He's not. That's why it's hard to understand. Because he's not. He's already punished your sin in Jesus. Now sometimes I don't feel like that. Sometimes I feel like God's failing me. God's not doing what he said he will do. God's not living up to his promise. Those are the kind of things we don't say in church or in public because they don't sound bad. But I'm talking about in our feelings, where we are, where we feel. Like, man, God, God's let me down. And what we're doing in those moments is questioning either the goodness or the power of our God. Scripture makes it abundantly clear. He is able to do absolutely anything. There is nothing that limits God. He is limitless. And He is good. Always. All the time. That doesn't stop me from when I'm in the midst of a trial of thinking, or even the third, it's kind of abandoned me. Has He failed me? Has He abandoned me? See, where is He? Where did God go? God, where? Why, God? Where, God? Where are you, God? Why can I not feel you, God? Why are you not here? I'm talking about it in the You know what I'm talking about, right? In the midst of a trial, these feelings come, and we don't have a good way to deal with them. Yeah, we know Scripture says that He will never leave us or forsake us, and He is with us until the end of the age. And sometimes what happens when I'm in the midst of a crisis, I'm in the midst of a trial, not only do I think things about God that aren't true, I also begin to demand things from God or expect things from God that I cannot expect. So for instance, sometimes my untrue feelings in the trial are that I expect God to, to fix everything. God, just, just take care of it. Make everything better. Fix it all. Sometimes my untrue feelings aren't just that he's punishing you, that I'm failing you, that he's abandoning me, but that we move on, that he's saying that, God, I, God, I just, I wish, are you going to make everything better? Are you going to take everything away and make it better? This is the sense, this, this prosperity gospel sense that's come along in our culture specifically, that if you're following Jesus and you have enough faith and you believe in God enough, he'll just make your life smooth and good. That is nowhere biblically to be found. But when I'm hurting, and the situation is dire, boy, I think, man, it'd be nice not to just make it all better right now. Well, the last one, we expect God to answer our questions. God, i got some questions for you, God. Why? Why now? Why me? Why not then? And here's what I want to tell you about that. God doesn't owe us an explanation about anything. It's not always easy to hear or understand, but it's true. God doesn't owe us an explanation about anything, and He doesn't tell us anything that He doesn't want us to know. He's not going to be forced into answering. We just celebrated Maddie's birthday on uh, this week, Friday. She turned nine years old. Um, always around Christmas and always around birthdays. Not, not so much Maddie's not the question, but Ava, my youngest one. Ava always tries to get information out of me about what presents are coming. 
So, so Edwin, my sweet, you know, six-year-old, will around Christmas time she'll crawl up in my lap. There's a lot more uh, hugs for Daddy and Daddy, I love you, and kisses on the cheek. And sometimes she'll do that, and she's just doing that because she's six years old and she's still okay to do that with Daddy. And sometimes she does that, and then she'll kind of sit there and she'll say, "Do you have me some presents?" <laughs> yeah. What? What'd you get me? I'm not telling you. You can't tell me. No, I'm not going to tell you. Or she'll try this tactic. Do you know what Luke and Eli got me? Hey, let's hope they got you something. But yes, I know. You going to tell me? No. Because it's my decision whether I tell her or not. She doesn't deserve that answer from me. We go to God sometimes like that. God, I'm so sorry. I messed up. I say a few questions. Can you answer this for me? God doesn't owe us an explanation. And when we're in trials, we feel like, God, are you abandoning me? God, God are, you, are, are, are you punishing me? God, can you give me some answers to this? And sometimes in that silence, we feel like we are not getting what we deserve. And yet Scripture teaches us we don't deserve anything in the midst of that. And that's what James says in chapter 1, verses 2 through 8, so important for us. Because it reminds us how we are supposed to deal with trials in our lives. And the first thing that we see in this passage of Scripture is that we are to treat the trials in our lives like opportunities. We are to treat the trials in our lives like opportunities. Look at James chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters. Consider it. What he said there with consider is to think deeply upon it, to ponder it, to weigh the evidence. This is to look deeply into. This is to study every aspect of it, to study every facet of it. It is to look into it completely. The idea is with intense glare, think about what you're going through. Look at it, consider it, study it. And when you do, remember what God has done for you and consider it great joy. So he's talking to people who are experiencing poverty and being an outcast and bereavement and loneliness and being shunned from their families and sickness and persecution. And he says when you're in the midst of persecution, when you're in the midst of loneliness, when you're in the midst of being poor and not being able to know where your next meal is coming from, think about that with great joy. Joy here is for supernatural delight. In fact, the original language says consider it all joy. Now, I've told you from the time I've been here that all means all, but the word all here means something a little different. It doesn't mean that you don't have uh, unpleasant feelings about it. It doesn't mean that you aren't reality or realizing that it's hurtful. What it means is consider it intensely with great joy, with super joy. Like be reminded of what God has done. You see, joy is supernatural delight that's different than happiness. Happiness is based on my circumstances. It's in the moment. It's here and now. It changes from hour to hour sometimes, from minute to minute. It definitely changes from day to day. Some days I wake up happy, some days I don't. Some days your spouse wakes up happy, some days they don't. Just wait to see if I can amen that one. That's a trap set for you, right? Happiness is dependent. I was thinking about this yesterday. 
For some reason, um, I made the decision to help coach basketball again with Kevin. Kevin and I, we almost got kicked out of the game last year once, but we, we're, we're going to be better this year, Kevin. Right? We're going to be better this year. Right? And so yesterday we played two games. We had a, we had a younger team. Um, it was a, uh, an older team, so 5th and 6th grade team, 7th and 9th grade team. The first game we go out there, 5th and 6th grade team gets off to the best start any team we have ever coached has ever gotten off to. Within the first four minutes, it's 12 to nothing. We are coasting. Like, it is great. And so, we, can I see Kevin Kemp starts pulling the reins back a little bit. We start playing, you know, differently, working on some things. We win the game by a significant margin. And here's the thing about that game. That whole game, I didn't complain to the refs one time about any call. I was calm. I was on the sideline. I had my legs crossed on the, sitting on the bench. I was like, oh, that's good. Like, one of our guys got fouled going down the lane. I said, play through it. Right? I, uh, one kid made a, on the other team made a wild three-pointer that it never should have gone in. I'm like, man, that's a great shot, man, good job, you know? Cheering everybody on, all right? Our second game was a little more contentious. Uh, one of the parents described it, I won't call it nowadays a cola, but here, he described it as the best football game he had seen on a basketball court in a long time. Okay? It was quite contentious. It was close most of the game. We ended up winning by like six, but it went from, you know, through the first half, we were up by three, up by four. But we, we never only really trailed much of the game, maybe the very beginning, but most of the game we were ahead, but it was close. And in that game, my mood was a little bit different than the first game. And so when our guy drove down the lane and got hit in the head and started bleeding from the forehead and they didn't call anything, I was a little apoplectic on the sideline. I started to yell a little bit. That Gray should have been called. There should have been a foul call on that. I mean, I was, and I didn't say it in the hey, ref. I was just wondering if you might consider that there might be a foul call on that particular play. I was like, he got hit in the head. <laughs> My mood was different. Happiness is based on circumstances. Joy is overriding because we know. The God we serve. And so when he says, you're in the midst of a trial, consider it joy. He's not saying gloss over the fact that it hurts like crazy. He's not saying gloss over the fact, he's not sugarcoating that it is painful, that it hurts, that it is uneasy, that you're losing sleep at night, that you can't figure out what the next day is going to be, that it's hard to get out of bed in the morning. He's not saying that it's not going to hurt. What he's saying is, in the midst of that, we remember the God that we serve, how great he is, how good he is, what he has done for us and the people he has given us to walk alongside us. We remember the God who is. And in the midst of that, we have joy. Now we have joy not just because of the God we serve, but because of what it does in us. We go back to that verse, in verse uh, 2 and following, it says, Consider great joy. There are these places in the middle, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, but these two go together. Consider the great joy because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. We can literally make it through because of the strength God has given us. It will help us to train. It will help us to be better. It will help us to walk better with Christ. We will, the literal word there is, stand up underneath it holding a heavy weight. We will 
bear it through. And when that happens, if we let endurance happen, if we let God work through us, if we do that, if we consider it joy, if we're looking to Him, if we're following Him in the midst of it, that will turn us into the people that God has called us to be mature and complete, lacking nothing. When a trial comes your way, one pastor says you have three choices you can make. You can rebel in the midst of it and say, I'm mad about this. I'm angry at who's doing it to me. I'm angry at God. I'm angry at my family. I'm angry at my workplace. I'm angry at the situation. And you can run away from God. You can resign yourself to the fact that that's just how it is and I'm not going to fight through it. I'm just going to let it happen or whatever's going to go on. Or you can rejoice in the midst of it that you serve a God that is faithful to you no matter what comes your way. And the choice you make will determine how we live out of it. I read this week about a, a nun who uh, was 85 years old and lived in the convent with, uh, with um, other nuns. And they had a conference in the next town over. And because she was 85 and some other things that were going on, she wasn't going to be able to go for three days to the conference next in the next village. And so she stayed back at the convent by herself. 85 years old, by herself. She's self-sufficient to take care of herself. Nothing was going on. Be crazy. And so they all left. And a few hours after they left, she thought, I'm going to go down and get a snack. And the nuns, part of what they do is they live simply. And so she went down to the kitchen. And she got a bottle of water and several celery sticks. Yum. Right? So she got water and crunchy water. Those are the two things she got. <laughs> And so she takes that, and she's going back up to her room. It's a two-story place. She gets in the elevator, starts back up the elevator, and as she starts back up the elevator, the elevator is stuck. She's the only one in the place. Everybody else is gone for three days. She thinks, well, at least I've got my cell phone. She pulls her cell phone up. No reception in the elevator shack. So she decides just to make the best of it. She turns a sip or two of her water. She needs her celery. She spends time in prayer, she sleeps on her purse, and she stays in there for three days. Now, the other ones get back, they feel terrible, honestly, obviously, of what is going on. They come and they open it, they get it open, they find out she's in there, they get her out, they get her to a place, they give her some food other than the crunchy water and water, they help her out through that. And they're sitting around the table and said, what did you do in there? What were you thinking? She said, I just realized pretty quickly that God had given me an opportunity to spend three days getting closer to him. I won't ask how many of you would have had that same thought if you were stuck in an elevator for three days because I don't want you to lie in church, all right? <laughs> our attitude makes a huge difference. And when trials come our ways, if we will trust that God is going to work through it and we will count it joy that we have been able to walk through with him, it will change. Second thing in this passage we see. That in the midst of those trials, we need to ask God for wisdom. Seek wisdom in the midst of your trials. He says it right here in verse 5. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, and I kind of joked about that earlier, but the truth is, every one of us in this room lacks wisdom. Wisdom, according to Scripture, is the ability to discern and carry out the will of God. 
The ability to discern, to know, to have the knowledge, and then the ability to carry out the will of God. It's not just head knowledge. It's not just being able to read an instruction book. It's being able to read the instruction book and then perform the task correctly. It's not being able just to memorize scripture. It's not being able just to know questions about the Bible. It's not being able just to have theological knowledge. It is to know that and then be able to live it out in your life. And God says, if you lack that, if you lack wisdom, if you're in a trial and you don't know how to make it through, if you're in a trial and it feels overbearing, if you're in a trial and you're questioning things about your life or your faith or who you are or where you are, in the midst of that, if you need help, ask for it. Ultimately, wisdom is found in our relationship to God. But the closer we are in our relationship to the Lord, the more that we are in His Word, the more that we are praying to Him, the more that we are spending time around His people, the more that we are engaging with the things that God intends for us to engage with, the more wisdom we will have. Because we will know His mind and we want to accomplish His will. At His very core, wisdom is applied knowledge. Knowing what to do doing it correctly. In the midst of a trial, there are going to be moments when we don't know which way to turn, we don't know which way to go, and in those moments we seek the wisdom of God. Now that can be found in His Word, reading His Word. In fact, I want to encourage you over the next few weeks just to take, you know, so, so this week, read James chapter 1. Read it every day. Just read it over and over again and then ask God, how can I put this into practice? What can I do today to help me to do what you're telling me to do in James chapter 1? When we read through James, there's not going to be a lot of questions about the commands. Remember that whole thing about one out of every two verses as a command? Just say, okay, Lord, how am I going to consider a joy today in the midst of my trial? God, how am I going to live with wisdom today? How can I live without doubt? And then apply the knowledge that he gives. We can find wisdom by reading God's word. We can find wisdom by going to the Lord in prayer. We can find wisdom by spending time with God's people talking about God's things. Sometimes we spend time with God's people talking about everything but the things of God. But when we're God's people, we talk about the things of God and the plans of God and the words of God. And the last thing out of this passage is always seek wisdom in the midst of that. But we are in the midst of our trials to trust God's goodness. It says that right here. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly. The idea there is literally that he is good. He wants to give. He is generous. He wants to ungrudgingly give. That means that he wants to give freely without us worrying about it. This is not one of those things where you have to go to the Lord and say, Lord, if you so desire, if it would be in your will, if it would be good, God, could you help me to know what to do in this situation? When you approach the throne of grace with God because of what Christ has done, you can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that God is there to help you, to love you, to help you through that situation. And you can go to God confidently and say, God, you promised me that you will give me wisdom when I need it. I am coming today without any doubt that you, God, will provide me the wisdom to live. I mean, he tells us that right there, right? Like, if you come to him thinking about it, you're kind of a wave tossed at sea. This idea that you're just kind of back and forth, wishy-washy. And God says, if you ask, I will give it to you. As long as you ask. In complete trust. Consider great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that testing every faith produces endurance. 
and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives you all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting. For the doubter is like the surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. There are some verses in verses 9 through 11 that we're going to come back to in the weeks ahead because it speaks about prejudice and rich and poor. I want to skip to verse 12 because there's an important verse at the end of this little section. Verse 12 tells us, Blessed is the one who endures trials. Blessed are you when you count it joy. Blessed are you when you ask for wisdom. Blessed are you when you live that out in your life. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Now in Scripture, whenever it talks about the crown of life, that's an end times. That's a after death. That's a win heaven kind of moment. When we will stand before the Lord and we will receive our rewards from him. And it says that when you endure trials, the hope that's coming is beyond anything that can compare to you. Now, I read that verse several times this week, and um, in the midst of this week, I, there was some news that came out that I heard about, about a story that I've been following just a little bit, kind of a distance. And it reminded me of this passage of Scripture because of the idea of following a trial, living through a trial, doing what God called you even to the moment of death. It's a story of this young man. who have got a picture of him. And some of you may know the story, maybe you've said it, read it, maybe you've not. This young man's got named Tyler Trent. Tyler is a huge um, Purdue fan. He's a huge Purdue fan who um, is, uh, was a college student at Purdue, had cancer, the cancer came back, and he became very, very ill. In fact, he had to stop taking classes this semester in the midst of that because of his hospital stay. He's a huge Purdue football fan, and I first became aware of Tyler's story watching the Purdue-Ohio State football game, because like most SEC fans, when Ohio State is losing in a game, I like to turn over and watch. I don't know if you saw this or not, but in that game, they told his story, that he was battling cancer, that it wasn't good, that the diagnosis wasn't very good, and that he was a longtime Purdue fan and had made it his goal to get to the Purdue-Ohio State game at Purdue. And he predicted on TV when they interviewed him that they were going to upset Ohio State and win, even though they were a double-digit underdog. That night, they didn't just beat Ohio State. They beat them badly. And the whole game, they kept showing shots of him. They had him in the locker room. This picture is actually not in Purdue. This picture is actually in Nissan Stadium here in Nashville. From the Music City Bowl that happened like two weeks ago. He, uh, I think, tossed the coin at the beginning of the game. They brought it to the middle of the field, tossed the coin. He was even weaker than he'd been just a couple of months earlier. Tyler passed away within the last week. And here's the thing about the story that I didn't know because of the national media. They don't necessarily focus on this. This morning, actually, when I was up and eating breakfast and getting ready, I was checking my, my Twitter feed, and there was a thing on there from something called the Gospel Coalition, which is a, a Christian site. And they said that the story behind Tyler Strong, 
So Tyler Strong has become a thing. I mean, ESPN is doing a fundraiser for cancer research using Tyler Strong. They're doing a special thing for him. Um, when the night he died, the, the lead anchor on the sports center, Scott Van Hill, walked, uh, left a seat open for him and had an emotional moment at the end for him. He's telling his national stories. But they said the story behind Tyler Strong, and it was an interview with his pastor. And he said, the thing that I want you to know about Tyler is, from the very moment he was diagnosed, he said, this is my chance to tell the world what hope is all about. And one of the pictures in there, I thought, just encapsulated this idea. It was a picture of his hospital room on one of his days. And they said that when he stayed in the hospital for any period of time, he would take a marker and he would write on the inside of his hospital door. And I'll, you may not be able to read that, but I'll read it to you. That on this particular stay, and you can even see the ghost image of his dad taking the picture there. On this particular stay, he wrote, God is holy, I am not. Jesus saves, Christ is my life. And when they talked to him about it, his dad said, I asked him, why did he write that? He said, there were two reasons. He said, first of all, it was a reminder to me that my strength only comes from the Lord. This is a 20-year-old kid who is battling cancer. My strength only comes from the Lord. He said, the second reason is this. He said, because it reminded me that everybody that walked through that door was an opportunity for me to tell about my Jesus. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of various kinds. I don't know about you, but Tyler considered it joy. To the very day that he went to be with his Lord. I don't tell that story first. It is an emotional story. I understand that. But my point is, whatever trial you're going through, you may never have the national stage that he has. Whatever trial you're going through, you see it as an opportunity to give praise to the God who has saved you and to witness to the people that are watching all around you how you handle it. Let's pray here.